The Jewish views on the annual CST figures on anti-Semitism. Mark Gardner from the CST tells us what the findings show. Miriam's Table, Lillian Cordell on the cookbook inspired by her mother's Bukharian home recipes. And Neshema Festival 2018, Joanne Greenaway, one of the participants on how the first one of its kind surpassed all expectations. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Anti-Semitic attacks went up by more than a third in 2017, with the recorded number the highest in 34 years. The Community Security Trust published the statistics, which showed most of the assaults were random and against those Jews who were easily identified because of their religious or traditional clothes. There was an incidence of extreme violence against Jews approximately once every two and a half days. The CST said there was no obvious single cause, but a series of factors, including high-profile allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Donald Trump has called on Congress to pass a law that would give US foreign aid only to friendly nations. In his State of the Union address, the president seemed to be taking a swipe at those countries which voted in the UN to censure the United States for recognising Jerusalem as Israel's capital – Amongst them were Egypt and Jordan, which the Trump administration has cultivated to try and combat terrorism. Tributes have been paid to a former JFS pupil who's died while hiking in Argentina. The body of 24-year-old David Min was discovered on a mountainous trail popular with tourists in Tierra del Fuego province. It's believed he'd fallen. His former school said in a statement that he'd be remembered as a fun-loving, talented and able student with a great personality. His devastated family had visited him in South America in December. Poland's deputy ambassador to Israel was summoned to the foreign ministry for what was called a clarification discussion regarding his country's legislation that would criminalise the term Polish death camps. The ministry said the timing of the vote on the bill, the eve of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, was unfortunate. Poland's president said in a statement that he would carefully review the legislation. And finally, one of the last known survivors of the Sobibor death camp in Poland has died in Ukraine at the age of 96. The Berlin-based Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe announced that Arkady Weisspapier, who was captured by the Germans in 1943 while serving in the Soviet army, passed away in Kiev. Mr Weisspapier helped organise an uprising in Sobibor and was one of 300 prisoners who broke out of the camp as a result. But only 47 weren't recaptured. That's the news. Here's Andrew with the sport. Thank you, Viv. Israel has confirmed they'll be sending their largest ever delegation to a Winter Olympics, which gets underway in South Korea on 9th of February. Competing in alpine skiing, figure skating, short track speed skating and the skeleton events, the 10 athletes will be looking to win the country's first medal at the Games. Elsewhere, Israel's Davis Cup tennis side has received a warm welcome in South Africa ahead of this weekend's crucial tie, despite the country's sports minister saying he'll boycott the event due to the presence of an Israeli team. And finally, England's first away game in UEFA's new Nations League will be played behind closed doors as a result of Croatia's punishment for having a swastika marked on their pitch. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we usually do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And looking over the front page this week, we see a rather large apple. No, we're not talking about New York. In the middle, we have a photo of a lot of what I assume to be school teachers and the headline reads, apples all round. Yes, we're talking about the school awards. Our finest school teachers. You know, they dole out awards these days for you know, books, telly, films. I, I hear Jack, they even hand out awards for baking cakes. But do they hand out awards for what are the most important things in the world and the most important people in the world? And those, Radio broadcasters. I was going to say radio broadcasters, but on the tip of my tongue was also those who educate our children, those who secure our future. And in a Jewish school, of which there are very many in this country, there are some outstanding educators. And every, time, every January around this time of the year, we celebrate them at the Jewish News Partnership for Jewish Schools School Awards, which took place this week. So yes, we've got a big apple on the front page because, of course, you give an apple to the teacher if uh, you particularly are inspired or, or happen to like them. And I these... just used to give my teacher grief. I never gave them an apple. You were a bad student. Uh, I wasn't a great student. You see, it does affect your career if you're a bad student. So, I know. Uh, Tell me about yeah. it. If you had your time again. Me too. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, top teachers on a JW3. I'm not even going to pick out names here because all the finalists were winners and we had lots of different categories. It was interesting. We had mental health as one of the categories this year and there's been a lot of fantastic work done on campuses in terms of awareness on that subject so real celebration we had about 300 educators and we had about 450 jack was it you were overseeing the nominations process online yeah we had a lot of nominations and and these awards and hats off to pages and rabbi meyer who who runs the team there fabulous effort wonderful showcase not just of jewish education but the entire community and is there anywhere we can see a list of all the winners in the paper or online or where can we go? Well, we organised it, of course, brilliantly. But the, the, the one hiccup was it took place on the same night that the paper was being printed. So ah. um, it was only so much we could do in the allotted amount of time. So on the front page of this week's paper, you can actually see every name of every winner. But why they won, what inspired people to vote for them, that'll all be in next week's paper. Excellent. Well, we look forward to reading more about that in the next week. And on page four of this week's paper, I believe that Chelsea have been making all the right noises. Chelsea is in the football club, of course. Yes. World-renowned London football club, Chelsea, has long had problems with racism in the stands. And recently, the Jewish owner of Chelsea, Roman Abramovich, initiated a landmark campaign called Say No to Antisemitism. And this launched against Bournemouth on Wednesday night, and I had the pleasure of sitting in the press box right in front of the touchline. And it was a spectacle. At the start of the game, they had a large banner in the centre circle saying, say no to anti-Semitism. And the pre-match booklet, which I've got in front of me actually, features two of the biggest players with signs that say, say no to anti-Semitism. And there's a, a monologue from Abramovich himself, and the captain also writes about the issue as well. So they're really going hard on this issue. They're really driving home to their fans. They're speaking to their fans directly, saying that there's no place for racism in sport. And I believe, if I'm not very much mistaken, that you're not the only person in the community who is impressed by what Chelsea have said, announced and ultimately launched. Yeah, very much so. After the game, I had the pleasure of speaking to Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, and he was also very impressed with the initiative launched by Chelsea. 
Chelsea are courageous enough to publicly acknowledge they have a problem. But Chelsea have acknowledged that and they've said, right, let's develop a strategy. And not just an ordinary strategy, but a brave strategy. Thumbs up from the chief. But of course, the big question now, Rich, is that will other clubs follow suit? And that's unfortunately the unknown. Chelsea are, I think, a headline maker when it comes to racism on the stands. It, it was a lot worse when I was interested in going to football matches in the 80s and, and the late 70s. And you do see incidents. There was that appalling incident of the, the black guy that was pushed off the metro train in Paris by some Chelsea hooligans a couple of years ago. The club really struck hard and that's the only thing they can do. And, and these are good noises and it's good to see that they're actually taking some movement in the right direction what is telling and I actually don't know the answer as I'm asking this question to Jack because I haven't read Roman Abramovich's message in the match day program does he actually make note of the fact that he is Jewish in his comments because that would be most telling I'm guessing he doesn't it's it's very explicit actually he says that the match is dedicated to victims of the Holocaust and the Jewish community. But does he say as a Jew? He doesn't say as a he Jew. Doesn't he, he, he doesn't self-identify. He doesn't say I am a Jew. Yeah, but so it goes so far. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty... I won't say it, it's cowardly, but clearly... He, he, no, but hang on a second. No, I've, I'm even. I'm not the biggest football fan by any stretch of the imaginations. But even I will stand in here and say I will stand up for Roman Abramovich and say that if there is this level that he has to tackle, I don't think I'd go publicly announcing that I'm Jewish before a problem was sorted. Really, well, I'd probably live in fear myself. If you're going to, as a club owner really own this issue and you are a Jewish club owner of a club that's taking on anti-Semitism, the very first thing you'd say if I was writing the piece is as a Jew. Those are the first three words I'd use on a subject like this, but it's interesting that he didn't mention it anywhere. Look, I mean, these decisions need to be made, but I think it's nice to be... I, th I think the antidote to anti-Semitism is to be proud and have the courage of your convictions and to self-identify and shout from the rooftops like they do in America. American Jewish culture is a lot louder and prouder, I think, than, than we are, although we're getting better. But to say, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, like it or, or lump it, and that's what this campaign's about. Interesting stuff. OK, well, speaking of saying that one is Jewish and getting it out there, so to speak, the latest anti-Semitism figures have been released by the CST. Yeah, another year's figures and another rise. This time it's up by a third. Now, I think we need to keep this in perspective. We are only talking only. I use that term advisedly of 145 incidents of actual serious well they call it assault up from 108 in in 2016 but if you dig down it's still important to say that 10 times more attacks by the far-right neo-nazis than the islamic community that's important to note and the current term and the current tone i think in not only in the jewish community but in britain as a whole you know post-brexit we're very very divided there's a real sort of sense of us and them that there's nationalism on the rise populism on the rise so these are all issues i think that that come together and, and drive up the numbers when it comes to anti-semitism but i mean i don't know i mean as three jewish blokes sitting in a room now i have never experienced in all my years an affront to my identity as a jewish person I've, I've never been attacked or seriously insulted and there might be moments where i felt uncomfortable I, have you have either of you ever had a, an anti-semitic incident that the, you've been part of the nearest i have got and i have said it on this program before during schmooze discussions when we've spoken about anti-semitism the nearest i've ever got personally is a colleague of mine from a place that i worked at one time said 
something along the lines of that her landlord was badgering her for her rent. And then she promptly came out with the line, typical Jew, I suppose. Now, although that wasn't directly aimed at me, I did say, uh, do you mind? Mm. As if to say, what are you talking about, typical Jew? It's nothing to do with it. The fact was she was late for her rent. It's nothing yeah. to do with him being Jewish. But even that's, so, not, that's not an assault or an attack. That's no, just absolutely. ignorance and No, no, no totally. I, don't, I think that there's a difference between ideological anti-Semitism and ignorance. And I think that they both need to be tackled. But we shouldn't we shouldn't be worried as much by the ignorant form of anti-Semitism as the kind of sincerely held belief. Okay, well, we will look more into that when we speak very shortly to Mark Gardner from the CSC, who will tell us a bit more about those figures. Let's try and shoehorn one more in before we well and truly run out of time for this week. Toy drive in memory of a teacher. We started with teachers. Now let's end with teachers. Yeah, Suri Dubiner, who sadly was diagnosed and died of cancer in 2016. Much loved lady, just 34 years old when she died. Family and friends have set up a toy drive in her memory, which is a lovely scheme. Simply you donate toys to those who need them, to children that might not have them. And then they will actually make sure these toys, which can then be kept by the recipient, will go to the right place. And, you know, we just few weeks or a month or so away from Purim so it's a, a nice time of the year for this to to launch so I know we do plugs for really good causes and this is certainly one that qualifies so anybody interested in getting involved in the toy drive should go to the Jewish News website and full details are on there you'll find it on the homepage. Terrific. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all the time we've got for for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing, the annual report which looks at anti-Semitic figures in the UK have been released by the Community Security Trust. What do they show and what does it mean for the community? Well, to find out, let's now speak to Mark Gardner, the Director of Communications for the CST. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Can you perhaps start by telling us how this report compares to, say, previous years? There's a lot that's different. Maybe not so different to 2016, but, you know, when people think about anti-Semitism and especially when they think about anti-Semitic highs, you consider war in the Middle East, especially, of course, involving Israel. And that is when, throughout the 2000s, and then afterwards as well, you have these sudden spikes, these sudden increases in anti-Semitic incident levels. So the war lasts for however long it lasts, and during that period, the, the anti-Semitic incident level shoots up, and then it comes back down again. This is totally different. Through 2016, through 2017, We've had really, really high levels of anti-Semitic incidents. It's not something from overseas. It's British. Things about British society and the, and the condition of British Jews. And it's twice as bad now as basically it was four or five years ago. That's the easiest way to understand it. And do we know what has caused it to become twice as bad? Because you said that it's almost understandable when you see a rise in, say, tensions in the Middle East. And that's what ultimately leads to a rise in anti-Semitic crime. But now, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't any war, please God, in the Middle East any different than usual. And therefore, what could have possibly caused it? Let me try and explain what's caused this. Two, maybe three things. First of all, you had Brexit. There was a rise in racism during and after Brexit. Some of that impacted against Jews. We're not magically immune when there's a rise in racism across the board. Secondly, 
all of the anti-Semitic nonsense around the Labour Party, all of that controversy, what that does is it emboldens anti-Semites to come out of the woodwork. And it also, I would suggest, motivates Jews to be more likely to report anti-Semitic incidents. So we've got three things. We've got a rise in racism around Brexit. We've got all the headlines about the Labour Party, exciting and encouraging anti-Semites. And we've got the Jewish reaction. Because we have to consider also what is the rate of reporting. And when we when we talk about anti-Semitic incident levels, which is a really important thing for the Jewish community, we have to really dig into it and we have to say, well, do you know what? Actually, if, if CST does its job properly, then every year the percentage of people who contact us ought to increase. Similarly, the number of reports that we get from police forces across the country ought to increase. The number of reports that we get from security guards outside our schools, outside our synagogues, ought to increase. So the reporting rate should increase every year. And we think it has increased quite a bit over the last few years, thanks to what we have in place with police and security guards across the country. And can you just elaborate on it a bit further by explaining to us how this information is gathered? I mean, I think you've given us a little insight there, but how does it actually work and how is it put together ultimately into this report that we now see this week? So, look, we've got just under 1,400 anti-Semitic incidents reported to us. Most of them come from members of the public who contact CST. But let's go into some of the other sources of these incidents. Okay, We've got a data sharing agreement with police forces across the UK. 503 of the incidents came from police data sharing. Another example, 89 of the incidents came to us from security guards and security officers at Jewish buildings and Jewish organisations. Then there were another 26 incidents that we took on the basis of what we read in media reports. So you have all these different sources, and we do our absolute utmost to be really rigorous as to what we define as an anti-Semitic incident. So I think we're probably stricter than the police are in the categorization. The police, if if you as a Jewish person say that it was anti-Semitic, then they're kind of obliged to regard it as being anti-Semitic, we we really need to see some evidence that your house was, say you suffer a burglary and you say, oh, the robbers, they burgled my house because I'm Jewish. We would say, all right, I appreciate that's how you feel. Is there any evidence for that? What happened to other houses in the street? You know, we'd, we'd look into it. And, and basically we have over 800 more incidents reported to us that we didn't think were anti-Semitic. So, you know, we, we try to be really rigorous in this because it's the only way to ensure that the figures have real meaning. We're not here to publicize anti-Semitism. We're not here to say that it's worse than it is. But equally, we're not here to hide the truth. So we'll always do our utmost to work things out as best we possibly can. But then I suppose the problem with that is that when I hear that, and I'm sure that there are other people listening to this who think the same is that although obviously as a community we put our trust ultimately in the cst i mean i've just mentioned two of the words right there in your name but you know what i mean that we do ultimately put our trust in you to protect the community however 
what would you say sort of gives you the right to determine something is or isn't anti-Semitic if ultimately, as you alluded to just before, if that's how someone feels, then surely that's got to play a massive part in it. So therefore, these figures actually could be worse. The figures could be worse. We're just trying to find some kind of objective evidence that when you suffered a crime, that somehow or other the motivation for it was an anti-Semitic one. In a legal sense, whilst the police are pretty much obliged to record it as being racist, if you went to trial, you would have to prove a racially aggravated element in order to have it prosecuted as a racist incident. And in that case, I think you'd probably find it very difficult, unless the perpetrator said something, unless it was only the houses with Mrs. Ott on the front door that were burgled. It's, I do hear what you're saying. It is a very, it's a grey area, isn't it? It's difficult. It's really difficult. And the only thing that, that we can do here at CST is to ensure that our analysis is as rigorous and continuous a process as possible. We have to keep on applying the same standards. So the analysts are highly trained and they're overseen by people who've been doing the job for years and years and years. Mark, there's something that really frustrates me. And again, I would like to think I'm not the only one who thinks like this. But year after year, I mean, you and I have spoken however many times on Jewish radio in the past. And I know that I'm not the only media outlet that you speak to. You speak to many different radio stations reporting about what you guys do. But it always seems to be that no matter what as a community we try, we can never truly achieve to get anti-Semitism down and eradicate it. What do you think that we as a community are doing wrong? Or is it sustainable? society or who's to blame for the fact that you guys still have such a vast amount of work in this report each year? Anti-Semitism always reflects the condition of Jews and the condition of the wider society. Now, I grew up in Glasgow in the 1960s, 1970s. I used to suffer anti-Semitic abuse so often when I went out with friends, when I got on the bus in my Jewish school uniform. I didn't I I honestly didn't think there was anything especially wrong with it, if you know what I mean. Jewish communities don't live in the same places that they lived at the turn of the century, even in the 1930s. You go back to all the Mosley stuff. By and large, we live in neighborhoods that are not high crime and that don't suffer the kind of antisocial behavior with a racist aggravation. So I'm suggesting there that actually, do you know what? Before we started gathering these figures, if you'd done this in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, I think the figures would have been much, much worse. I think that society is a lot more attuned to being anti-racist than it used to be. But racism doesn't disappear. It's a constant challenge. Look at the history of anti-Semitism. How dare we assume that it would just magically disappear? What, because of the Holocaust? The Holocaust meant that everybody would reflect on what they had done wrong and would behave so much better? I don't think so. You look at the way that Howard Jacobson, for example, speaks about the Holocaust and compares it with the hatred that's piled onto Israel and that's piled onto Zionism, almost as if people are trying to balance out whatever guilt they might feel over the Holocaust by putting all the hatred onto Israel and onto Zionism because it somehow or other perversely balances out whatever horrible benefit we have somehow accrued from the Holocaust. 
So I, I think it's really deep and really serious. It's a very, very important question. Ultimately, Jews need to stand proud, stand against this, and call upon decent people, because there's a lot of decent people out there, to do what they can and to, and to voice their support for us. Well, as ever, it will be very interesting to see what happens as a result of it. Mark Gardner, Director of Communications from the CST, thank you so much for speaking to us today. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by comedian Rachel Krieger and lawyer Denise Lester. They will be discussing what mothers have taught their children and their family to subsequent generations. Plus, also, they will be talking about how far women in Judaism have come, this celebrating the Neshema festival, which we'll hear about a little later on. But first, how familiar are you with the Bukharian Jewish community? I mean, I can't say that I am that familiar with it myself, much to my shame. However, if you, like me, aren't that familiar, then there is a new cookbook out that might help us that little bit further. It's by Lillian Cordell, and it's inspired by her late mother. The book is entitled Miriam's Table. Our arts editor, Kate Fulton, has been along to speak to Lillian to find out more about this for us. And I should warn you at this stage that there is the smallest amount of interference in the middle of this interview. So please do excuse us for that. Kate started by asking Lillian to tell us a bit more about her mother, Miriam. Miriam was my mum. She was born in Jerusalem and she was one of eight children. She was the youngest of eight children. And we used to say the youngest was the kunichalta, and in Bukharin that means bottom of the bag. So I've got that in common with my mum because I'm the youngest out of three sisters. She was born in a, a Bukharin family where her parents were born in Samarkand, which is Uz, now Uzbekistan. And they moved from Uzbekistan and then had their last two children in Jerusalem, which is now the Shkhunat Bukhari, which is the Bukharin quarter in Jerusalem, the old city. Were there many Jews around then at the time when, when she was living there? She wasn't living there because she wasn't born there. Her parents were living there. Yes, it was quite, as I understand, a large community there. But they had to leave Bukhara, Uzbekistan. Well, what was Uzbekistan? Sorry, it was the south of Russia. It's now Uzbekistan. So when you were, when you were growing up, give us a bit of a picture about your mum. Um, she came to London, in fact, to meet my father, to marry my dad. He lived in London and it was a beautiful matchmake where my mother's parents used to sit in Jerusalem and they were discussing their children, as one does on a Friday afternoon with women. And they said, I've got a daughter here in Israel. And their family said, well, I've got a son in London. And this match was made just there and then. And then my mother saw my father's photograph. He phoned her over the phone and said, would you like to come to London? Let's, you know, arrange something. And she left her family and friends and and flew to London with, as I understand, a brisket of salt beef. And that's what I remember as a child growing up, watching her in the kitchen, making wonderful foods for her family. And that's what Bukharian food is all about. It is a pot full of love, a one pot dish for the family. That's a lovely way of describing it. And when you have your, when you used to have your traditional, your meals, your family meals, what, what differentiated them from say the kids around you or the people around you? What was the food? What, what sort of differentiates the food? I think again, it's, it's family based. Um, 
and it, it's made with so much love. And the memories of, of those foods were very traditional based on Friday night, we had our green rice. Saturday night, we'd have red rice. Um, during the week, we'd have yellow rice. So it's those things that I remember. Pastries, festival foods, where chicken pilav is very popular. That was always when she used to have guests come round and she'd make this abundance of food, always left alongside with booze, drink. Uh, we were big, you know, vodka drinkers. And it was just the culture. And it was very much, I didn't have that, that sort of keen love for food. But I think watching my mum, that's what I, I inherited. So you used to watch your mum and did she teach you? No, never taught us. <laughs> it was, it was very much her domain. And I did write a book in 2011. I had Yota Motolenghi assist me because he was also Israeli-born, knew about Bukharian food. And we did two recipes together. And he said, good luck if you're going to make a book on it. And I think some years later, today, I've made this book. It is a beautiful looking book. It's, it's, it's called Miriam's Table. And in it, there are any number of beautiful pictures and lovely pictures of you too. So interesting. I saw this parushki. I saw this with the donuts filled with meat. Sounds odd. How do you have things like donuts and meat? It's almost like you're mixing something. Don't think of them at sweet? No, it, it's the dough, which is deep fried. Again, mum used to make everything with lots of oil. She used to buy litres of oil. In fact, those large, big cans of oil, which I suppose took, you know, we, we didn't enjoy eating so much oil. I haven't really changed the recipe, but I've made it slightly filtered with less oil. A perashki was this most beautiful donuts pastry filled with mincemeat. We've got another one like that called samosa, which is puff pastry filled with mincemeat. Bukharian food, if you think about it, it's a lot of stuffing, stuffing of vegetables with mincemeat or chicken. So you've got that your protein, you've got your chicken and meat along with your vegetables and your, your rice and your carbohydrates. It's, it's, as I said, a one meal. It's amazing that you've put this together. You must have found all these recipes. If they weren't written down, you've had to sort of pull them together. And then, and all the beautiful photographs. How long did it take you to pull together? It's taken me some time, but my mum died three and a half years ago. And before she died, I was busily asking her and we wrote down the recipes. But the majority now of the recipes are from her, but also it's my memory and how they taste. And that's why it's taken me about a year and a half for each recipe to be made, to be worked out through my editor, sub-editor, and photographed. So each recipe has a photograph with And sampled, no doubt. Absolutely. I had the whole year of eating Bukharian food, which wasn't, it was great. I enjoyed it. Non-stop. And other people presumably approved of what you, uh, what you were making. Oh, absolutely. So we've, I've had friends come around for dinner. A, a lot of the family, every time there was a yacht site, a memorial day, a family gathering, birthday. In fact, my son got married. And, and we did, we, we made all the Bukharian food as it was traditionally made. And we photographed it for the book. So the book itself, I understand that you're now donating the proceeds to charity. How did that come about? Well, I felt that this is a big investment, more about the legacy for my mum and for the next generation, which is very important for me to make sure that all Bavarians will have something to refer to as their memory. And therefore, I thought it's lovely to have this as a memory, but I've worked in the past with many charities and I thought, 
let's do something else in addition to to having this for my mum and go with three charities that I've chosen for the book. Noah's Ark, which is a children's hospice in Barnet, which is local to us, Teenage Cancer Trust, and then the North London Hospice. And these are the three charities that I felt, as it's the next generation, they support and help you from birth till your end of life. And I believe you've got a website. What's that? Well, it's it started off just the basic website about buying the book for £20 plus £3.50 postage and packing. But because I've now travelled and made sure that each one of my first cousins has bought the book, and in the book it states how, where they're spread all over the world. And I've been to Israel, Miami, Toronto. I've yet to sort of filter into New York because I want them to have the book. It's, you can really only buy it online because I feel that the profits need to, the, the most of the profits need to go to all the charities. So visit the website. It's got all the information. It shows you where I've traveled and also lots more information about the family. How fantastic does all of that sound? Thank you very much to Lillian Cordell speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her cookbook, Miriam's Table, which has been inspired by her late mother's Bukharian home recipes. If you would like more information, then do head over to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link to the website to give you all of the information that you need. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And coming up a little later will be our rabbinic thought for the week. This week it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue. But ahead of that will be our Jewish schmooze. Remember, we live stream our schmooze on our Facebook page. You can catch that every Wednesday lunchtime from 12.30 onwards. And it will give you the chance to comment along as the discussion unfolds. And you also might like to know you can email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk on any of the subjects we cover in this show we really do love to hear it from you i know i always say it but i always mean it please do get in contact you can also message us through social media go to facebook.com forward slash the jewish views or on twitter we are at jewish views uk now what does it mean to be a woman in the jewish community in 2018 well hopefully that's a question that might have been looked at at the recent neshema festival it was announced at the end of last year by the chief rabbi's office and it was a festival that was going to celebrate women in judaism that festival has now taken place and i'm delighted to say that our very own harley baptist has been speaking to one joanne greenaway who was one of the participants in the festival. Harley started by asking Joanne to tell us what it was like participating in the Neshama Festival. It was really, really special. I have to say I loved every minute of it. It was something I was very proud to be involved in as Mayan. I'm one of the participants on the Mayan program and we played a part in in helping to organize it and and to, to run sessions. So I ran a couple of sessions and sadly I didn't get to go to many of the others because I was involved in the ones that I was running. But from what I heard, the feedback was brilliant and I wish I'd had chance to hear some of the other speakers. It was really it was really everything we could have wished for in terms of the vibe and the feedback from from people who were there and just creating a really special place for women to come together and to be together women from across the spectrum uh, and to to learn together and to to raise the profile of women learning Torah and enjoying themselves. And for those who don't know, what is in Mayan? A Mayan is a new qualification under the auspices of the the chief rabbi, which is about women having a, a role within our communities 
And it has a couple of different facets to it. So the first one is to be able to advise on questions of halacha, particularly pertaining to women. So Jewish law around family and relationships. So we've been studying a lot with Diane Simons from the London Bet Din. Questions of Tarat HaMishbacha, which is an area of halacha, really, really complicated, much more than I'd ever appreciated. And that has lots of practical ramifications in relationships, whether it's fertility issues, whether it's contraception issues, all these kind of questions that women often want to go to a female advisor for rather than rather than to a rabbi if they prefer and to be able to help help women in lots of different life situations. So that's one aspect for which we've had halakhic training and also a lot of medical training. And then the other aspect is uh, being educators within communities. So being able to give shurim, being able to have a platform within communities to be involved on the education side. So I'm hoping it's going to have a big impact within the United Synagogue after we graduate in a few weeks' time. So you're probably able to, to really actually shine at, at this festival. As you say before, a space for the community of Jewish women to to celebrate their Judaism, celebrate being together and, and also discuss all the different issues that are, I mean, affect millions of women all around the world, but specifically Jewish women. I think the Neshama Festival was a perfect start for being a Mayan in the sense that, you know, we were really able to connect with women in the community. But it was also about bringing in other educators, really world-class educators, and really creating an, a spark and an excitement around women's learning. And that's really what, what being a Mayan is all about. So, you know, it's, 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 bigger, than, it's bigger than Mayan. And I think it's really, it's really started something here in England. And I really hope that we're able to build on that, whether it's through further Neshama initiatives, through the work that we do as Mayanot, and, and really engage Jewish women. And more than 600 women were there in attendance, which is amazing. And it was such a huge mix of people. You must have stumbled upon some pretty interesting stories and interesting individuals. A lot of people said that they connected with old friends, which is really nice, you know, to see people you haven't seen for 20 years. There were people from from the north who came down, which was which was fabulous. And, you know, a lot of my friends came anyway to, to support the work that I was doing. But lots of different age groups. I saw quite a few mothers who were there with daughters. And also a couple of people told me they were there with their grandmother and as and their daughter, which is just gorgeous to have an event that can bring people together like that. And everyone can choose things that they want to do. So the point was that there were different access points. So it was not only straight Torah learning, as people might expect with texts. It was also through dance, through art, through song and then entertainment as a concert at the end as well. So the idea was that it was supposed to be something for, for everybody, whatever, you know, however you want to spend your your evening, there was something there to engage you. And remind us again, where was the Inishama Festival at? It took place in the Hilton Metropole in Edgware Road. So it was a bit of an outing into town on a Saturday night. Nice, well, but it's of- a big venue, so there are lots of different rooms. So we had the main... Havdala at the beginning that Frida Kaplan led beautifully with a band and then and then we danced and then we split up into our different sections um, and there was one big room where there were videos films being shown from film school in Israel and one of the sessions that I did was a, a conversation with the person who curates the films and I it was about a divorce so I work in the Bet Din on divorce cases and I was able to talk about how we manage that here and how we deal with difficult cases so so that was in a big room and then there were lots of smaller rooms where there were where there were different sessions taking place throughout the evening. And then we came together at the end again in a big space for a concert. And it sounds like a fantastic way to spend a Saturday night. What's important about 
this festival is that obviously it was a chance for everyone to to have a good time, but to also discuss a lot of the issues raised in the women's community, in the Jewish women's community. Do you think it's encouraged enough for people to celebrate Judaism and being a Jewish woman? I think it's a really good question. I'm, I'm all for creating spaces to do that. And, you know, the more we can do that, the better. There certainly, you know, women are in many cases crying out for a space to come together and to express their Judaism. There are more and more women's only prayer groups, which a lot of people find they really connect to. And and one of the things that the Mayanota are planning to do that we launched actually at the event is to create learning circles. So women's only learning circles where women can come together on a monthly perhaps basis with a Mayan or with another facilitator to to learn what they're interested in. So So that will create another space. Look, I think there's certainly... You know, we're not trying to, to to separate communities into men and women, but I think sometimes there is a space for it where women like the opportunity to, to be together. Definitely. And can we expect to see another one next year? Well, that's, an, that's a question for the Chief Rabbi, but I certainly <laughs> think it was a big success. And I think a few people that I've spoken to afterwards have said, you know, when's the next one? And let me put it in my diary. So you know, that's that's definitely something to, to start planning. Joanne Greenaway, one of the participants of the Nishema Festival for 2018, 5778, speaking to the Jewish Fuses Harley Baptiste there. If you would like more information on the Nishema Festival, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll even be able to see a link to some photos of the event. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are comedian Rachel Krieger and lawyer Denise Lester. The subject for this edition is inspired by Kate's interview with Lillian Cordell about her cookbook, Miriam's Table, and Harley's interview on the Nishama Festival. Both subjects are based on tradition, and in particular, the tradition of women within Judaism. The first question is, what traditions have we picked up from our mothers and the others, which we'll come on to? How have women progressed in the religion? Denise, let's start with you. You can tell us what do you believe you've inherited, what traditions have you inherited, really, from your mother? I think there is a, a, a tradition and I, what I've inherited from my mum is warmth, the love of the home, the love of the family, her being supportive of my father because they had a very traditional and indeed a very happy marriage as well and strong, strong values. And I don't think that I could do the job that I do, honestly, as a solicitor specialising in family law without that foundation. And I do believe that actually the woman has an intuition and a humour and a warmth, you know, the whole thing like cooking and and worrying and also loving to have a a schmooze and a talk as well. You put it beautifully. What about you? I don't even know what to add to that, Denise. That was amazing. 
it's a lovely subject for me because I'm touring at the moment a show which talks about what I've inherited from my family and particularly from the women in my family. So thanks for the plug, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and one of the things I talk about is my grandparents and how much the topic of food was part of mm -hmm. the culture of nurturing and loving. Mm -hmm. And so not just because in Jewish culture we have food for celebrations and for sad times, you know, it's feast or famine, isn't it, all the time, but as a way of making Feel, people feel welcome to feel comfortable to be able to chat you know bring out a hot drink as soon as somebody steps through the door and get them to sit down shove biscuits at them food was part of the love I think in our home do you think do you think that men have also taken things from the Jewish woman in the household oh. I mean because I do a lot of cooking right in my house which I learned from my mother and my my bubba my grandmother right so I do that mm. and when people come to my house if my wife's not there I also offer them a drink when they come in and biscuits and, and all Quite the other right. bits so from that point of view the tradition in my house if you like of the woman being in the home because women go out to work has, has changed hasn't it because you know I'm, I'm there often my wife's there often mm. but sometimes we're not all there together you've well, reminded me of something that happened about four or five years ago I had an accident in Golders Green. Mm. I drove my car into a tree and the door opened of the house out of which it had happened and there was this Jewish woman and she said, come in, come in, sit down, sit down. She was absolutely wonderful. She ordered an ambulance. She did all sorts of things. But, but the first thing she said was, have a cup of tea and something to eat. Of course, but the shock... Well, I think that, you know, tea and food, I have a very clear memory of my bubba, my mother's mother, Avisholam, basically feeding us egg and chips and viennas and mm -hmm. chicken soup mm -hmm. and barley soup and salt beef and making the pickled cucumbers. She was Polish and she spoke Yiddish and she couldn't even read or write, actually. And But her food was her expression of love. And, you know, food is very important with my family. Food and is very food important as a Jewish family anyway. Absolutely. And I, think, and I think, Tony, you're a very much a modern man because you obviously loved and respected mm. your mum and you mm -hmm. must have been in the kitchen the whole time. Yes, I've had this discussion her. before with various people. I asked my elder brother, who is fractionally younger than Clive, why was Very I? <laughs> and, and why do I do a lot of cooking? Why was I always in the kitchen with my mother and my grandmother? Mm -hmm. And he said, "I was the youngest of three. He said because you were such a little tear away. Wasn't the word he used, but you're such a little tear away. <laughs> they wouldn't let you out of their sight, so they kept you in the kitchen. And by keeping you in the kitchen, they gave you things to do. Mm. And I learned to make." So, you know, I, I, I make all the things we, which a lot of people buy. I make chopped liver. I make canadla. Oh. I still render down chicken fat wow. because of the stuff you buy is not how my, my taste, my grandmother you're made it. You're the real thing. Well, I'm you're, the real thing. I mean, I wish, I think it's such an attractive quality in a man to be able to cook because I think men also express their creative sides by, by cooking and... It's just, yeah. It's just, so it's just so the role of the Jewish woman in my house has changed. Well, it's interesting because such. when I was first married about 4,000 years ago, 
my grandmother used to be horrified that my husband would help with cooking, with clearing up, or if I, we had a rule, whoever does the cooking, the other one mm. cleans the kitchen, yes, that kind of thing. Sort of thing yeah. She found that really, really difficult. But that's how we are now. We're both freelancers and we share all the household chores and all the household everything, childcare, everything. We're very modern. Bring back memories, you see, because my grandmother would not allow any man to the kitchen. And my mother used to say that her mother-in-law her religion was the kitchen. Mm. And we had every Shabbat, we had chopped liver, chicken soup with... Kneidlach. Uh, Kneidlach. Kreplach. Kreplach. And chicken done in a special way, and yeah. then fruit salad. <laughs> and, that, and that was because of you've eaten all that fatty food, so you needed the fruit salad to sort of get rid of it, really. <laughs> well, I've well, got someone on Facebook, Sandra, says that she learnt all forms of needlework Great relatives were, all her great relatives were Jewish. Well, wow. I, I actually did a piece with my mother in, for the mail publication. I think it was either Daily Mail or Mail, mail on Sunday, where I talked about the bad in my case and haphazard needlework skills but it was one of the things that I'd learned from my mother and it was a it was actually a piece where there were various mothers and daughters who were talking about what they'd learned from their mother so this That's is so actually this completely is on point incredible. although we and I yeah. didn't know I, I, didn't I know, learned needlework know. from my mother and, and my father my, my mother was a milliner and my father's parents my i didn't know his parents yeah. were hatters mm. his wow. father was a hatter mm. so he also mm. had needlework a mad skills. hatter mad hatter yeah. i was thinking it and we i didn't come say from it. my family it had to be <laughs> <laughs> that's very surprising seriously yeah that that your that your mother allowed you to do that as well as cook yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i Learned mean everything there is i mean is, you know i would say it's quite it's quite interesting isn't it because there's the contra view there's Men should be have been kept out of the kitchen, and depending on people's families, there were very, very clear demarcations. The mm. traditional roles were, you know, the man goes out to work, and the woman feeds him and provides mm. for him. But now, with the modern, the uh, role has, has changed moved because women go out yeah. to work. Where, mm. Whereas my, although my mother worked, she worked from home as a milliner. She worked in, mm. at home. So she didn't go out to mm. an office or a factory or whatever mm. it was that they, they would have gone out to. So she was a traditional a traditional mm. Jewish woman. She kept mm. the house. And uh, my father would come. My father couldn't cook at all. And, of course, that was also the reason why the women didn't have to go to synagogue. Because they were too busy. Well, of course, on Shabbat well, you can't cook, so yes. Mm. Yeah, but they, were, they, well, no, they, they, but they they'd never went on Shabbat. My mother never went to... Did she not? Short, no, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, but not on Shabbat. She, she I never suppose went that to depends on, on the kind of family that you grow but up in, But my aunt though. never went to... Aunts never went to no. Shul on Shabbat. I don't know many women that actually did go to no. Shul growing up on Shabbat. I, but I think that role has also changed because women now want to take part in the service. The Rabbonim used to say that the woman actually was more important than the man. The man just went to pray but the woman actually brought up the family and kept their Jewishness. Oh, the message of the patriarchy there. Yeah. And, the, and women are, are not obliged to go to shul yeah. because they're, they're on a higher spiritual plane than the men. So That's they're right. banned right. by time bound mitzvot commandments. So there's no obligation. And the other thing is of course that my mother, my mother and her contemporaries, I mean you know my auntie 
my aunties who are all you know I'm very close to and I love I love them I love their warmth and then them feeding me they didn't learn to read Hebrew that was no. where the, the men went to yes. to study Haida and people's education was interrupted because of the war mm-hmm. now there's much more of a move for women to read Hebrew mm-hmm. over the last sort of 30 40 years and it's all you know so well, and it, it was fine, and that was all fine. There was no problem about in, in it. In my school now, they've now got a class for the older women who weren't bat mitzvahed, who would like to be bat mitzvahed. That's quite mm. lovely. So idea. my wife did it last lot, and they've got another lot in now because uh, most women of my age weren't mm. bat mitzvahed. It didn't exist. No. Bar mitzvah did, but a bat mitzvah didn't. It's very interesting because there are women rabbis now, aren't there, in, mm. the, reform in the reform and, and liberal synagogues. Mm. What do we think uh, the current parental generation would teach their children? Because the role of men and women alike has I, changed so much. I think that there's... Well, the classical perspe- perspective is that men and w- women are unique. They're individuals with, sep- with special qualities. But I think actually you can't ignore the march of equality and you can't ignore the march of of basically teaching men and women similar skill sets so that they can get on with in in life so you were talking Mm. about cooking and homemaking and say economics home economics used to be a subject that women used to go uh, go to uh, go to but in fact men need to know how to look after themselves the other thing is talking as a family lawyer society has changed there's far more families that break up Mm. i act for men that have to be homemakers that are staying staying at home you know there's changing roles so you know, we have and to move people, with the times. Uh, people are staying single for longer as well, aren't they? Absolutely. So, uh, Again, moving, it depends on your community, parents, though, so, yeah. I'd say, Tony, because it depends if you grow up in a very orthodox environment, if you grow up in a more liberal environment, progressive environment. There's a lot of difference between the way people function, the way they bring up their children and the expectations that they have of what their life will be. She I've got ben, ben on Facebook people. says, do we believe the traditions we've been taught by our parents are influenced by Judaism or being British? Oh, I'd say both. I'm sure both, because over, mm. if you look at the different customs in different parts of the world in the Jewish communities, they're all brought in from our traditions that have been passed down generation to generation and the influence from everyone that you meet. And if you, there's a brilliant YouTube video about the history of the Hatikva, where the words and the different tunes come from. It's really interesting because it feels like a very Jewish, Israeli, traditional piece of music. And the roots of the different elements of the music come from all over Europe. Europe, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, but, that's, but that's with reference to the Israeli position. I, I think that my humour... When I express myself in times of stress, it may be in Yiddish, <laughs> and it's very Jew- it's very Jewish. So I think you cannot factor out my Jewish DNA, mm. and mm. it's not religious. It's just, no, it's just the ethnic thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. my sense of Britishness and my sense of being a servant of society and being and, and adhering to the rule of law and contributing and loving the multi ethnicity of Britain is mm. intrinsically from my parents. And part of my DNA as well. So it's it's absolutely mixed. I think we have the exotica. We're very lucky, actually, mm. like other ethnic groups in this country. I've got something very nice from Valerie on Facebook. She says her grandmother was a Jew, so that makes me one. And I will always stand with Israel, which is a very nice oh. thing to, oh, to say. That's a lovely word. Because sadly, our time is up. So that's a lovely word in which to end this discussion. My thanks to our guests, comedian Rachel Krieger and lawyer Denise Lester. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio 
at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. The transition from one Torah Sidra to the next takes place on Shabbat. In the morning service, Shacharit, we read the whole Sidra. Then in the afternoon, Mincha service, we make a start on the following week's Sidra. My head, heart and soul are still resonating with the words of Sidra Yitro. Last Monday, I joined family who had crossed oceans and time zones from their homes in Melbourne to celebrate the bar mitzvah of their son and grandson, my great-nephew, on top of Masada, Israel. There we were blessed with breathtaking views in each direction to the north En Gedi where David met King Saul, a little further north, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and behind the hills of Jerusalem. To the west, behind the imposing mountains of the Judean desert, lay the sands of the Negev, trodden by Avraham Avinu. To the south, beyond the horizon, Sinai, the meeting place of God's encounter with Moses. To the east, the Dead Sea. With a 360-degree turn, I embrace God in Jewish history and with mountain, sea, desert, God in nature. While the Bar Mitzvah boy opened the Sidra that contains the theological and moral blueprint for civilization, the Ten Commandments, the Aseret Dibrot, ears and eyes, heart and soul filled with God. But I couldn't spend the whole of my stay in Israel on top of Masada, in the same way that the Bnei Israel had to move on from the thunder, lightning, shofar blasts of Sinai, but take the Ten Commandments with them, not just physically, but morally, with God's instruction to become a Goy Kadosh, a holy nation. So we transition from the supreme spiritual experience of Sinai to the small but essential print of Sidra Mishpatim, 53 mitzvot, aspects of Kashrut, Shabbat, Shalosh Regalim, sensitive treatment of the widow, orphan and refugee, and a raft of civil and criminal laws. Our relationships with family and friends are not defined by the highs, simchas, birthdays and anniversaries, but rather the everyday. So too, we do not need Masada to appreciate God in nature. Every sunset, the rain that fills our reservoirs, autumn's golden leaves and spring's fragile buds offer us that encounter. So too, we do not need Masada to discover God in history. We see God in Torah and the texts of our tradition. When on Pesach we open our Haggadah or on Hanukkah light the Hanukkiah. God in Jewish history, God in nature is accessible, close, almost touching distance. Engage and discover, experience and enjoy. Time now for me to say thank you very much to all of our guests because that is all the Jewish views we have time for. So thank you very much goes to Rabbi Stephen Katz from Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue with our thought for the week. Thank you also goes to Mark Gardner, Director of Communications from the CST, to Lillian Cordell, who was telling us about her cookbook, Miriam's Table, inspired by her mother's Bukharian home recipes, to Joanne Greenaway, one of the participants in this year's Neshema Festival, also to our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening. 
And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.